Well, I'm talking to you today from England. Hello to all my British compatriots. Is that, is that even a word? I'm not sure. Comrades. Comrades. That's a... Yeah. Uh, Uncle Vlad might want a word about that. Yeah, that's all right. Today's a mouth organ sort of day, is it for you? I do have it right here with me in the studio. You never know when you might need to like just a uh, kind of punctuate a point. <laughs> I need to paint a picture for those listening via audio. I have my microphone in front of me resting on a couple of pillows on a desk in the corner of my wife's childhood bedroom. It's quite the setup. Yeah, and also it's another way of saying if you have problems with it, it's not Drew's fault. I mean, you know, that's not necessarily a Drew approved, but... Uh, no, I'm not sure it would be sound engineer uh, no. 101, like microphone placement or anything like that. Are you getting hyped for the meetup? It's getting close. I am. Well, first of all, uh, it's my sister's wedding this weekend, which is the entire reason that uh, we're over here. And then my mind will move to the good people of the JB community, and I can start getting excited about that. But... Uh, August 5th, for those of you that have forgotten or didn't know or are just hearing about it for the first time, August 5th, underneath the London Eye in the Jubilee Park Gardens, we're having a London meetup. I'll be there, Joe Ressington will be there, and about 100 other people, 100 other podcast friends. I've got stickers, so if you'd like a self-hosted sticker, limited edition diamond cut, very nice. I just saw in the London Colony Matrix chat room, one of the listeners that made it to the Raleigh meetup there in the States is getting on a plane in the next few days and flying out to London for the meetup. No way. That's so cool. He had that good of a time at the rally meetup, at the Raleigh, as you say, meetup, which uh, I don't know. I, I take that as a compliment. No pressure. The meetups have been well received, right? No. <laughs> so meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for the details and timing and all that. I feel a little less organized for this one. I mean, the last one was 20 minutes from my house. This one is a little further than that. And, uh, you know, I can't bring a tent this time and snacks and stuff. Yeah, I, I hear you. I feel unprepared when I show up to a meetup without Lady Jupes, my RV. So I can imagine, you know, like, oh, okay, we don't have the swag. Yeah. We don't have the, okay, we don't have food. Uh, we got beer. No, we don't got the beer. Okay, well, I guess it's just us. But you are off where I presume is also your future off new offsite backup, or are you building something with the house you're staying at now? Tell us a little bit about that aspect of the trip. Yeah, it's been so exciting. It's been it's been a, a magical mystery tour of England for me this this last couple of weeks. <laughs> Has it now? <laughs> we uh, we stayed at my sisters, my mums, my dads, and now we're staying at the mother in laws. And each of them have had their own unique levels of what they deem acceptable internet, which is often far from what Alex deems <laughs> acceptable internet. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, uh, fifty meg down and a couple of meg up is just about fine for uh, remote working so uh, it's it's been interesting the most the most interesting one was my dad's he moved to a a new house a few months ago and his uh, his new internet was one step above garbage you know we're talking single digits down four or five meg down and half a meg up through dsl uh adsl it's it's just no good so he he got starlink and when we stayed with him for a few days, I got to try out Starlink for the first time, which is pretty interesting. That's it? Interesting? I mean, for some of us, it's like a life changer. It's so cool. But yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm guessing not a great experience <laughs> by that descriptor. As a city dweller who is used to the latency of a cable connecting me into the Matrix, it's quite an adjustment. You can definitely tell 
when a certain sat- satellite is direct overhead versus when it's off center. Um, and so I, I actually took a time lapse of Dishy in the garden just to see if I could see it moving around. You can't. Uh, at least, I mean, I, I left it on there for 10 minutes and I couldn't see any movement of the dish, which I, which I found interesting. But if you put your ear right next to the dish, you can actually hear the motors kind of adjusting as it, as it goes over, which I found fascinating. But yet in my, my very short review of Starlink, even though it was only for three or four days, is that in a pinch... It's, it'll do, but I would never buy a house that relies on Starlink as the primary internet connection. And I think for me, it's been an incredibly useful exercise, actually, to to try Starlink out in, in the real world. Yeah, you were, what, you're probably seeing ping times on average in the mid-40s, hopefully. That's usually pretty good for Starlink. The speeds were fine, actually. We were getting 100 meg down and anywhere from 20 to 60 up, which is, honestly, it's perfectly fine for big bursts of traffic we could stream videos just fine and things like that but video calls which are real time in nature were not as reliable as i would like for a full-time solution and given that i um work 100 remotely it's very important to me so that that's really the the main thing it's just the fact that it wasn't consistent and that sometimes the pings were 10 to 30 milliseconds and sometimes they were up near 100 you know so it really it really depended on what mood it was in it felt like yeah on average you know just collecting data for the weeks that i have right around mid 40s seems to be like my average ping time when you consider the high end and the low time you'll see and i completely agree you with your assessment it's it's great for folks that want to watch netflix and it's fine for a lot of it's fine for a lot of activities online really it's real-time communications where it's still a little tricky and also game streaming. I have actually done some game streaming, but as I'm playing from time to time, that latency changes. So, of course, then the performance in the game changes. Now, the one thing that is nice is because, like you said, Alex, it is tied to the orbit of the satellite. So what that means is your ping times change gradually, right? It's not like you're getting 44 milliseconds, 44 milliseconds, 280, 280, 44. It's not that kind of choppy. It's it's a more consistent latency that it, it does matter on the distance. You know, it's just physics that is traveling up to that satellite. Compared to LTE, which especially in the States is often met with bandwidth caps that I would exceed within a few days and then throttling on top of that and then capricious carriers that just change the rules and plans on you all the time. Or like you go the other route and you buy like these reseller packages. I have, I actually have one of those right now where it's technically it's like some enterprise plan that they're like relabeling. So you've got, you got in on some deal. It's crazy kind of a gray market for cellular data and they're always complicated. They always inevitably blow up on you. They're really expensive. They're more expensive than Starlink is per month. So when you look at what the options were for a lot of people compared to Starlink, Starlink is such an upgrade. But what I think is ridiculous is, and you're seeing this a lot on the East Coast, is people in homes are buying Starlink just because they don't want the, they don't like their ISP or whatever it is. So they're dropping their cable and DSL connections. And switching over to Starlink, which is probably more expensive, I would think, definitely slower, and is overburdening the Starlink network. And now that Starlink has this RV package where they'll ship the dish to you immediately, and you, any you know 
Tom or, or Jane can buy one of these RV packages and then they can set it up at home and they have Starlink. They don't have to wait for Starlink to approve them through the current queue, which is based on capacity. And I, I think the whole thing is going to degrade the quality of the network. And it's, it's going to be that way until they can launch more satellites. But all that said, it's what I use every, you know, every day for my home connection in Jupes. And for me, it was, it's, been a, it's been a really big deal. The reality is it's, it's better than most other rural options, especially for people like you who are fully mobile. But I think for me, really, it was answering the question of, could I buy a house in the sticks and rely on Starlink and not want to slip my wrists full time? Like, does this actually open up areas of real estate to me that were previously off limits? I don't think so. And I think it's just a, a personal judgment call that you've got to make. Yeah. And, and for some people, like the, the remote off grid elements are so much more of a priority that they'll take the, you know, the, the less ideal internet connectivity. But if you do a lot of VoIP calls like you do, right, for work specifically, I think you're right. You really got to think about it. And there will be other options. Amazon's working on some stuff. There's some other companies that are working on other solutions, and some of them will be even uh, a lower distance of travel. So maybe they'll be even better. So the other thing about Starlink that's worth talking about, I think, is the crappy router that they ship with that thing nowadays. So my, <laughs> my dad got the square Starlink dishy dish. Uh, which is the newer one, as I understand it, which has uh, got a built-in cable and it uh, it comes into this um, futuristic-looking router that has a you know cool SpaceX logo on it, Starlink logo on it. But he had to buy the Ethernet adapter, which I think we got off the grey market on eBay for about £100, which is crazy just for an Ethernet adapter, but there you go. It's the only option to get it into the rest of the network, into the real the real world, for want of a better phrase. Uh, so he could hook it into his existing Unify setup and all the rest of it. But when I was there, I was using Tailscale a lot to to get back home and do a lot of stuff with, you know, everything that I do. And my subnet at home includes the range 192.168.1.0/20, I think. And the trouble with that is that the default Starlink subnet is... 192.168.1.0. And if in Tailscale you have an overlapping subnet in the remote LAN versus where you are now, and then you try and do a DNS query, obviously it doesn't know where to route the packet because it thinks, well, that particular subnet's over here when actually it's in both places, so it just loses its mind. It's not Tailscale's fault. Obviously, it's the uh, network design, and you know, it's my, it's my fault, really. And so I thought, okay, cool. How hard can it be to customize the subnet in a Starlink router? How hard could it be? <laughs> not possible. It's just not possible. I, I, I feel like the hardware is decent. I like that it's OpenWRT based. And they've they've done some really smart things in there in terms of like diagnostic capabilities and being able to speed test your Wi-Fi from the app and all that kind of stuff. That's really cool. I really like that bit. However... With the square dishy, they have a dependency now on this router, which is just awful, in my opinion, because in the past with the circular dish, I could go directly from the dish and take that Ethernet cable and just plug it in the back of my router. No Starlink router needed. 
And then I could manage it with my pep link where I mix it in with my LTE and Wi-Fi connections. It was glorious. And now I have a router in the mix and I don't like it. And it's another piece of gear that sucks power. And I don't like that. Although overall, the whole dish he set up, the square dish he set up takes less power than the circular dish. But, you know, you get it right for like, you got to figure it's got to be 95% of people who buy this. This is probably a significantly better router than their ISP would give them. Probably. But it's it's annoying knowing that it's open WRT under the hood and they don't expose even basic knobs like customizing the DHCP range. I think the whole thought is that such a few amount of users would ever need that that they don't want to they don't want the support burden of it it's got to be it but i've i've just kind of worked it out as much as i can but i agree with you it could be a lot better so moving on to the next stage of my trip we're now at the mother-in-law's in norfolk i brought my old uk server with me and it's now living at its new home best part is that she now has fiber it's 500 down and 70 up which is plenty for all for my needs remotely there you go that's better now we're talking with good ping times and everything else the downside is she lives in a well over a hundred year old cottage with you know several foot thick stone walls <laughs> wi-fi is a challenge i have two or three unify repeaters that i have installed here over the last few years and it works well enough, but obviously you know, now she's got fiber, which she was using an LTE mast on the roof to get her internet before. I had to think about running ethernet through the house to, you know, cope with the new speeds and, you know, my servers here, I want that hardwired, I don't want that on Wi-Fi, etc., etc. So I spent most of yesterday morning up a ladder running ethernet through the walls and drilling holes and pulling ethernet cable around the outside and over the top of the roof and <laughs> oh. it was it was it was fun you know it's not something i want to do every day but as a one-off it was good fun but it got me thinking about you know the various different things that you might want to start thinking about when cabling a house you know uh cat 6a versus cat 6 pass through ethernet connectors what type of crimping thing do you need this was the first time i ordered i pre-ordered some pass through ethernet connectors jacks rj45 plugs and essentially these things i think are going to change my ethernet termination game they are the way to go okay you line up all your cables in the right order so you've got your your orange and then your blue and your green whatever the spec you've chosen is and then you line them all up and you shove them through the plug so that the strands actually poke out of the far side of the plug and then you use a crimping tool that actually snips off those cables at the perfect length. Beforehand, what I'd done is is most Ethernet plugs I'd used before, you'd have to look really closely and sort of hope and check that all of the cables had got into the terminals and, and hope that all eight of your connections were in the right order and hadn't jumped a slot when you're shoving it in. Right. But with the pass-through cables, you can actually look at the cables that have come out the other side and go, right, there's four solid colours there and there are four stripy colours there. They look about in the right order. Clip, done, test. I only I only did four plugs yesterday, but I think that's the first time I've done four plugs and got four plugs working <laughs> first time. <laughs> right. I know what you mean. So if ever you're thinking about what cables to buy, what connectors to buy, Spend a little bit extra if you're someone like me that, that does it once or twice every century and uh, get the pass-through stuff. It does make your life a lot, lot easier. That is a great little tip right there. I have seen those and totes agree. 
They're nice. It's such an easier way to do it because of the reason you said right there. You can just check your colors, make sure you got everything in the right order, and then you chop it. Now, the next thing that was on my plate was trying to figure out the firewall situation. So her fiber connection is a PPPoE uh, fiber to the home connection. So I built an OpenSense router. I ordered some parts off eBay. I brought an old CPU with me from the States, an i3... 3200 or 3220 i think all right uh eight gigs of ddr3 l ram um i ordered a lot of the the only thing i brought with me was the cpu everything else i ordered from ebay basically at the airport whilst i was thinking about what i had to do (laughs) (laughs) whilst i was here. not last minute at all (laughs) okay (laughs) and so it was it was you know 10 10 days before i needed it and luckily everything arrived i even remember to order thermal paste Somehow my brain remembered that thermal paste was the thing I was going to need. Wow, you really channeled that PC build energy. Nice. Yeah. And so I built this I built this router, sat on my lap, and assembled the Intel DQ77KB motherboard. That rolls off the tongue. This is a really nice mini ITX motherboard. It's got two gigabit NICs in it. One of them is colored red, so I use that one as my WAN port, and the other one is just black. They're both Intel NICs. So OpenSense picks them up right away. Uh, install of OpenSense took about four minutes. Uh, really super simple. You burn the image onto a USB stick. I think I used Rufus on uh, on my mother-in-law's desktop running Windows. Uh, four minutes to install the uh, OpenSense operating system. Then it automatically detects the WAN and LAN links based on the IP addresses it's getting or, or not getting in, in some cases. And... That's it. it. It could not be simpler to install an OpenSense system. But I've got to say, that that moment when you post a system that you've built from assembled parts of random eBay sellers for the first time. Yeah. When you know you've only got two or three days, so you don't have time to wait for more parts to come in. It's a, it's a squeaky bum moment. I'm going to tell you that. Those eBay purchases are a roll of the dice a little bit. Um, although, honestly... So is buying stuff new. I have probably more often than not received things brand new that haven't been functional than I have from eBay. I'm impressed, A, that you had the forethought to get the thermal paste, and B, that you're doing all of this ordering in the chaos of an airport, which means you're, you're like looking at the eBay listings, you're like reviewing the eBay listing, maybe you're checking the reviews of the seller too, you're making all these decisions while wife and kid are with you in an airport, and it all managed to work out. That. I'm going to say that's a little bit of luck and um, a little bit of ninja, both. I'm going with 95% luck on that one, <laughs> that it all just worked. Yeah. Right. <laughs> put a, I put a 60 gig MSATA SSD in there, 8 gigs of RAM, as I said. And the reason I put so much RAM in this system is because I wanted to run a couple of services on this box. Now, I've mentioned this before, but you can install packages on OpenSense from a guy's repo called, I think it's MeMugMail. I, I, I really don't know if I'm saying that right, but there'll be a link in the show notes. I'm able to run two critical packages directly on the firewall. The first of those is TailScale. I can run TailScale on the router. That's great. That's worth it right there. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be setting up a direct WireGuard endpoint on the firewall as well, just as a backup. But uh, running Tailscale on the router itself is so nice because it gives me access to the entire subnet without worrying about if a particular machine is turned on, anything like that. You know, I've got exit node capabilities, all that good stuff with Tailscale. 
Uh, so then I just installed Tailscale actually on my router in Raleigh and the router at my mum's house, which has got the Synology. So I've now got a three-node Tailscale OpenSense network going on. It's it's pretty sweet. <laughs> That's great. And then the other package that I've started installing on OpenSense is AdGuard Home directly on the router. So I use that as the primary DNS server on the router itself. I disable Unbound. And then I point port 53 through into that service that's running on the router itself. So I have ad ad blocking on the router, and it means I can do DNS rewrites and all that kind of stuff if I need to for uh, DNS reasons. It's just so nice. How did you communicate any of this to the family members? Do you say, you're going to have ad blocking now on your network, you're welcome? Or do you kind of not say anything and just see if they report an issue? What's your What's your approach? It's easier to ask for forgiveness, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, there is something to the fact that, like, if you tell them, I I mean, my family does this to me all the time. If I sit at their computer and then something breaks afterwards, it's my fault, even if I didn't even change anything, right? So uh-huh. there's a bit of a logic to just not saying anything and just seeing how things go and just knowing that they're taken care of. So is that is that your, is that your approach? Yeah, uh, particularly for the ad blocking stuff. Because, you know, I, I know that uh, mobile games are quite popular in this in this household and they are really bad for ads. And whenever I'm traveling with my wife, she always goes, God, I always forget when I'm at home just how many ads you're saving me. Thank you. So I'm hoping that in six months time we'll have a conversation and she'll be like, oh, yeah, well, look at all these ads. And <laughs> by the way, you know, when I was out there, I uh, did a little something for you. <laughs> and the upshot is for me, I can do, you know, easier dns rewrites and that kind of stuff and then i've got a standardized setup between the three different places because i do add guard on all three i do tailscale now on all three i've got open sense at all three sites so yeah that is really nice just keep it nice and consistent for you less mistakes easier to support there will be a link in the show notes by the way to how i set that up i am using AdGuard as the primary dns i think it uses unbound as a recursive or upstream provider which then Finally, after those two hops, goes out to Cloudflare, to the internet, to do the final internet-based DNS resolution. You know, it's so funny what you've done here. There is a place in the business world where this could be sold as a product for businesses and doctor's offices and whatnot. You come in, you set up uh, you know, an open, audible firewall, and then if they have multiple branches, something that they're always trying to solve is how to link those branches together. So then you offer TailScale as a solution to link those branches together. AdGuard does the... Uh, DNS for them and the ad blocking to help make their system safer. Like this, just this little thing that you've done on this trip could be sold as a standalone like service and offering product that a consulting company goes around because I have seen that in my days in IT. I have seen businesses that were using a lot worse technology, a lot worse software and hardware going around making a killing selling setups like this. I know that Tailscale aren't sponsoring today, but I have used the heck out of Tailscale on this trip. It is, it's like dark magic sitting down in a foreign country, typing a DNS entry that you know is at your house 3,000 miles away, and it, it just loads behind a firewall. It's just so cool. We still have the URL. Or, you know, we could use coders, tailscale.com slash coder or tailscale.com slash SSH. But yeah, they are not a sponsor on this show, but we love it. Still use it. So there you go. And you're right. If I was traveling over to families, that's what I'd be setting up. You're really making me consider OpenSense and AdGuard. I have to be honest with you, for the network here at the studio, I've been mostly for the content reasons and because it sounds fun, I've been really considering just doing like a a Nix-based Raspberry Pi Compute Module 4 on a carrier board that has dual gigabit Ethernet and then 
Nix is the OS, and then just a really simple, really basic command line firewall setup and just do everything through an SSH connection and just see how slim and minimal of a firewall I can make. But you, Alex, you make OpenSense seem so attractive, especially with those add-ons. That, uh, that really does get me. Tailscale and AdGuard sound really nice. So I don't know. It's been it's been great for me. I know I have a bit of a bugbear about people saying, oh, it's been rock solid. Uh, what does that phrase even mean? Like, you know what I mean? But uh, it's been rock solid for me, you know? <laughs> ah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's been it's been really solid. I do know what you mean. I, I appreciate the stability that you're trying to imply with that. So <laughs> Alex likes it so much. You know, he's installing it for mom and dad. So now the only question is, are you going to leave them with any kind of docs or user logins or anything? What do you do there? I've got a Bookstack instance set up for them, but I wondered what other people are using for family members and friends and things when you need to communicate basic information, like what the Wi-Fi password you've set up is or what, you know, IP. Do family members need to know what IP address you have the access point set to? Probably not. But, you know, basic stuff about the network that you've done that if you got hit by a bus tomorrow, they might need to know the answer to, you know, basic stuff like that. I've actually taken just to just a simple GitHub flavored markdown file that I then print out and leave in the drawer. It's not secure or anything like that, but uh, I feel like it speaks the language of, you know, non slightly less technical people, which isn't to say a bad thing. It's just, you know. How it, how it is. Yeah, I don't think you want to leave them something that they have no control over. I mean, like, you know, God forbid something happens to you. You don't want them to have to tear everything out. You want somebody to come in and go, oh, I see what Alex did here. Yeah, okay. Oh, I see what the problem. Yeah, yeah, we can take care of this. Right. That's what. So I think that's a good goal. I would also be really interested to know what people are using for that, because I feel like I've probably got a few family members I should document things for, not to mention the wife. So let us know. My daughter helped me this morning clean out the server. It hasn't been powered on for about four months. And before that, I don't think it's had a proper cleaning in, certainly since I was here last September. But some of the fans looked a little bit more crusty than that. So we're, <laughs> we're outside on the patio with a little paintbrush, you know, dusting out the fans. And she was she was helping, you know, like kids do. Which got me thinking about different, uh, you know, the hard drives that are in there and things like that. And I just want to underscore the importance of directed airflow to the audience right now. So my server here is a, in a fractal define R5 case, and it was missing just one of the five and a quarter inch blanking plates on the front of the uh, CD-ROM drives. There's two of them. So it was missing one of those, and it's got two, I think they're 120s, they might be 140 mil fans directly underneath to pull air in at the front of the case. Last night, the hard drives were running at about 50 Celsius, and this is in an ambient temperature of about 24 Celsius. So they were running pretty warm. And so I thought this morning, I'll just make a little blanking plate out of some duct tape and some cardboard and stick it over that little hole at the front. Just doing that lowered the drive temps by 11 Celsius. I couldn't believe it. That's way more than I would expect. Jeez, man, I come to think of it, I've got a bad airflow situation right now with my hard drives. I have the case cracked at the moment. That's probably not good. Yeah, just a little thing. And I, I didn't expect it to make such a difference either. But I think it just goes to show that with hard drives, you've got to have the airflow directed in just the right way so that it's actually going across them and not doing any kind of weird turbulence stuff. 
Anyway, speaking of hard drives, did you see this uh, Backblaze latest hard drive blog post that came out? Indeed. I love this post. They've been doing this like forever now, since 2013. They select 10 drive models and then they, of course, have a ton of data like smart metrics and whatnot. And they look at, at different models and different size ranges, four terabytes, eight terabytes, 12 terabytes, and now 14 terabytes to see what kind of reliability data that they can find. And I always kind of find this a little stress-inducing, I have to be honest with you. <laughs> like anything these days, it seems to me that there's only two, maybe three companies, if we're being generous, involved in what is a global market you know we were actually sat having dinner the other day looking around on the table and I, I made a joke that i bet you on this table there were like five or six different companies worth of condiments and i said i bet you there's only two or three companies behind all these different things turned out it was two it was nestle and some other company i'd never heard of but the, nestle have so many subsidiaries that you just you can't even fathom it they are just so unbelievably huge and the same factors are at play in the hard drive market. So you've got Seagate and Western Digital. And over the years, those two companies have swallowed up everybody else, including uh, Hitachi Global Storage Tech, HGST, uh, Toshiba, Samsung used to have a hard drive division. There were loads of others. And so quite often on the internet, people will get into slinging wars about PlayStation versus Xbox or Apple Mac versus PC or Linux versus Windows. And the hard drives are absolutely no different. People are some people swear by Seagate, some people swear by Western Digital. And I think what this blog post just goes to show is that the entire internet's full of Yeah. And like they <laughs> even dig into how even some drives that are labeled a Western Digital on the outside are actually an HGST on the inside and there's just so much shenanigans going on in the hard drive market. I did not really fully appreciate how bad it has gotten until I read through all of this. Uh, and honestly, it just seems like outside of two years, things just really start to get pretty shaky. I mean, there's definitely some models that last longer, but beyond two years, and I'm just like, yikes. And I've got I've got several, oh, I don't know, 20-ish drives that are probably about four or five years old that I'm relying on right now. Ooh, that's getting to the danger zone, bro. And they just have a lot of data, right? They've got a ton of disks. They've got years of data. They do. And they, you know, they're putting consumer grade drives through what are ostensibly enterprise grade workloads. You know, they're, they're in data centers full of lots of other drives, full of lots of other vibrations. Yes, you could argue that the temperature controls and maintenance schedules might be a bit better than your average home user. But, you know, the other environmental conditions like the vibrations I mentioned probably balance it out so that it's a fairly average picture of what's going on. And I, I don't know of anybody else that publishes data on the scale that Backblaze does. Certainly not for drives that I can buy. You know, I'm sure AWS buy specific white label drives that are just for Amazon because they buy at such volume. Whereas Backblaze will buy model numbers that you and I, mere mortals, can go ahead and buy, which is lovely. For me, I'm looking at this data and I see that, you know, like you say, two or three years after that kind of lifespan, I'm going to want to start thinking about rotating my drives. Maybe not all at once because the bathtub curve and all, or, you know, the sheer cost of buying 
multiple hard drives all at once. But it just goes to show you that, you know, probably every year you should be replacing 20% of your hard drive so that within a five-year span, you are replacing the entire lot completely. There's lots of things you can do with old hard drives. You can put them in backup servers. You can make clocks out of them. You could make coasters. You could do all sorts of other You could sell them if you want to. Um, so it's not like they go completely to waste. And, uh, you know, every if you think about the the kind of storage increases that we see every five years as well, you might go from a, a four terabyte drive to a 16 terabyte drive in the same slot. And then suddenly you don't need as many drives anymore. And your five year 20% become, I don't know, there's, there's a lot to consider. I'm looking at it thinking, okay, if you're really serious about data integrity, you're probably looking at after about two years, you're going to want to start rotating those disks to a different job at least. Maybe they're not done, but maybe whatever your like really critical data is, newer disks go in. I don't practice that. I really don't. But, geez, I think at some point what I've got to do is I've got to figure out a budget for just rolling disk replacements. And... You know, we've had these ups and downs in the pricing market for these drives. That's something the Black the Backblaze article touches on as well. And so it sort of wrecked my ability to kind of just incrementally buy because there was periods where it was super cheap, so you wanted to buy a lot, and there was periods where it was super expensive, so I didn't want to buy any. And what we really need is just hard drive price stability in a way where I can just, okay, you know, uh, every year we're going to buy 10 discs or something like that, you know, and we're going to buy it throughout the year or whatever. Well, you you talk about dollar averaging with Bitcoin in uh, in other aspects of your life. You should do dollar averaging with hard drives. Yeah, disk averaging. Yeah, like once a month. And the way I look at it is, every Black Friday, I spend anywhere between two hundred and two hundred and fifty is my my kind of sweet spot in air quotes per drive dollars. I'm talking about the best terabytes per dollar that I can get in that price range is typically what I'll buy every Black Friday. And there were some decent deals around Prime Day this year. Uh, if you look on shucks.top, so shuckstop, you can get a good idea of the overall uh, kind of shucking kind of hard drive pricing scene with a snapshot of, you know, what the drive fluctuations have been and when the last historical low was and all that kind of stuff. And And generally speaking, you'll find that 200 to $250 range is... At the moment, I think there are about 14 or 16 terabyte drives in that price range, which is, I think, I think it's pretty decent. Oh, man. All right. I needed to hear this. This is good for me. I just, I hate the actions I'm going to have to take as a result. <laughs> I appreciate the Backblaze continues to put that data out. Of course, we'll have the whole write-up linked in the show notes. There's some really good graphs. And I don't know, tell me if you see something in there, but to me, it, it looks like Looks like the smaller drives tend to be a little more reliable. I'd like to know your take on it. So, Alex, we got some feedback from a listener about leak detectors from DeckBot. We did from DeckBot, who's in the Discord. Hello, DeckBot. I hope you're having a nice day. Yeah, thanks for joining us live. Hey, Chris and Alex. In episode 75, you were discussing leak detectors. In a previous job, we used leak detector tape to detect flooding on the water fittings in semiconductor LPCVD furnaces. I have no idea what that means. but Liquid propane, I'm guessing, but I don't know after that. <laughs> Commercial, maybe? <laughs> Probably, yeah. These were about 10 feet of cloth tape with two wires running on the outside edge. Any liquid or heavy feet on the tape would cause the electrical circuit between the two wires to short and trigger the water leak error in the PLC. Uh, and this would also power down the equipment. 
These tapes were a few meters long and we'd also make the tapes snake across the floor in three inch strips. I like these much more than typical flood sensors since you can draw a box around a leak prone device like a water heater or sink rather than waiting for the compartment holding the faulty devices to fill up enough to trigger a flood sensor. While in my professional life they were a bane as any drop of water or isopropyl alcohol misplaced on the tape powered off the furnace, I wish I had the few extra bucks to add a few of these to my home assistant to watch for failed sump pumps and rusted out water heaters. There'll be a link in the show notes to Deckbot's recommendation of these water leak detectors. But you went a different route this week, Chris, no? I did. I mean, this does look really great because the whole rope, right, is essentially a sensor. And that that does seem pretty clever. But I actually decided to go with a recommendation that we got into the show. I got a Shelly flood sensor here. And these Shelly flood sensors are Wi-Fi sensors that have little contacts on the bottom of them that detect water. And they also have a temperature sensor in them. And they're reasonably priced, somewhere around 30 U.S. bucks, no hub required. When it arrives, it produces its own Wi-Fi network. You join that Wi-Fi network, and then you go to the web address, like it's a 192.168.0.1 kind of a thing. And you configure it to join your actual Wi-Fi network. And then pretty much shortly after that, Home Assistant detects it and says, hey, would you like to use the Shelly integration? Now, this, my friends, this is where a choice will be made. This is where early into the process, you will reach a fork in the road. You must choose if you want to go with native Shelly integration or if you want to use MQTT. Because, of course... Everything in Home Assistant is just three steps away from using MQTT, and the Shelly Flood is no different. Now, uh, I, because I had really no time to mess around, just decided to use the native integration. I had heard that in the past there was some issues, but those issues had been resolved, so I thought, okay, self, we'll use the native Shelly integration. So I went ahead and did that, and now as we're looking right here at it during the show... Uh, I have what everybody has, and that is that now the Shelly temperature sensor is completely offline. Home Assistant can no longer talk to it because the way the system's supposed to work is that when the temperature drops or when it detects a leak, the device is supposed to wake up, join your Wi-Fi, and report back to Home Assistant. And you can kind of configure that threshold of, is it 1%? Uh, is it you know one degree in temperature? Is it 0.5 degrees? Is it two degrees in temperature? What's the what's the threshold to wake up the device and then report back? Uh, however, that doesn't seem to be working for me. Clearly, I should have gone the MQTT route, which the rest of the internet would tell you as well. I'm not particularly interested in doing that for reasons, but I may eventually. However, um, my overall experience with the Shelly was pretty good, and I am kind of in the process of looking at getting rid of some of my Z-Wave devices. I am considering when I get back from my September West Coast tour, thinking about doing a nuke and pave and redoing my home assistant setup. You have been threatening that for a number of months now. I'm so annoyed, dude. (laughs) I'm so annoyed. I really just don't want to... I have, you know, 60 Z-Wave devices or something stupid like that, and I just don't want to go through and reset them up. So I'm going to eliminate some of them. And I'm also going to eliminate some of my HomeKit devices. And I think I'm going to look at different Shelly devices that are Wi-Fi capable to see what I can replace with. And so I kind of wanted to get some experience with these Shelly devices to see if I liked them, to see if they'd be a candidate. And I had some new plumbing 
in jupes that I want to put a leak sensor on anyways. And so this just seemed like a great opportunity to try it. And I also kind of would like to know what the temperature is in that area. So great. This device does both. And I like that it uses Wi-Fi. It's not Z-Wave or Zigbee. Uh, They claim you can get 12 to 18 months of battery life. It uses one of those 3-volt lithium CR123A little batteries, little Duracells or whatever from wherever. And the fact that Home Assistant just detects it within seconds and offers up an integration, in theory, if that integration worked the way I wanted, is a really nice experience. And there is a ton of documentation to actually make this thing work the way I want. But you know what I thought, Alex, is when I was using this, one of the things that struck me was there are areas where the Home Assistant developers could be closing the gap to make this a better user experience. Like when you connect something like a flood sensor, you got to figure there's a pretty, like a 95% chance that if you get a flood connect, if, if Home Assistant sees a flood sensor connect to the system and start receiving data, you probably want an alert when the flood sensor detects a flood, right? Like you can almost, it's probably some people that don't, but probably like 90, 95% of the use cases, they want to know when the flood detector detects a flood. And there are lots of ways you can do this, man. I could get a notification of Matrix and Telegram. I could rig up some push notifications. I mean, there's a lot of ways, a lot of really great ways you can solve push notifications in Home Assistant. But A, nothing tells you you need to do it. B, nothing helps you do it. And C, nothing's like I push a button and now I'm getting push notifications from this integration. And to me, this just seems like a no-brainer Nebukasa integration. Like if you're paying for the monthly Nebukasa Home Assistant service, it seems like a no-brainer that they could be routing push services through that to the app that I already also have connected to the Nebukasa cloud service. And the Nebukasa servers offer push notification capabilities for developers. So like the infrastructure is there, like everything's there. I just need a button that says, get push notifications about this. And oh, by the way, if you're a home assistant member, you get those push notifications automatically. Like that just seems like a no brainer value add that they could do. And you would need something in particular that would work with iOS's time sensitive notifications and whatever the equivalent is on Android. Cause you need something that'll break through like do not disturb because for a, a flood sensor, like I'm in I'm in rec- I'm in a recording focus mode right now. Nothing but my wife and maybe a kid can get through this. But a leak sensor I'd also like to get through. So you need something that could actually support time sensitive notifications on iOS and I've conveniently linked the documentation for that from Apple's developer portal in the show notes. <laughs> you know, I'd like to see things like that as part of the works with Home Assistant program that we covered last week on the show. Uh you know, just imagine if Shelley were on that program and as part of that program, there was a bunch of magic that became available to those developers, such as exactly what you just articulated. Yeah, that'd be so great. However, I got to say, all that aside, really impressed with the Shelly setup. You know, the fact that it was super quick to connect to, had a really easy to use admin interface built into it. Anybody that's probably used a Shelly has seen this before that even though this device isn't functioning with Home Assistant the way I want, I've decided to go ahead and pick up a couple of other products from them because I was overall very impressed. And so I'm getting the Shelly Plus H&T, which is their e-ink humidity and temperature sensor that has a little display and then, of course, reports back to Home Assistant over Wi-Fi. We'll see how this works. I'm assuming 
probably going to be the same thing. MQTT would be a, probably a better route to go. But I'm going to give it a shot. That looks remarkably similar to the Xiaomi sensors that I have, which are BLE. Is this a Wi-Fi thing? It is, yeah. Because those BLE ones I have are about 90% reliable, which is just about enough. But if it's, yeah, they look really great. No Bluetooth is ideal to me. I'm, I'm coming around to the idea of just having everything I can on Wi-Fi and just like saturate that IoT network. Because I mean, that's, you know, that's what I have it for. The other nice thing, though, about it, look at this. It's, 30, it's 3950 for this uh, Shelly Plus H&T. It's, it's a pre-order right now, but it's shipping, I think, like mid-August or early August. And it's e-ink. Is yours, are the BLE ones also e-ink for the display? No, I don't think so. I think they use those typical kind of LCD segment displays. Yeah. So they're saying, um, you know, at least a year of battery life with the e-ink display. And then it has uh, USB-C for always-on power or, uh, um, you know, charging. So one of the things I think I'm going to do is I'll have mine connected to USB power permanently. And so then they'd be reporting constantly. I just noticed this sucker needs four AA batteries. Yeah. That's quite a lot. Right. I'll just do continuous USB so that way it's always reporting because I think that's the difference, right? If it's on battery power, it wants to save that battery power so it shuts everything down and then Home Assistant loses connection with it. So the Shelly Plus H&T, I've already ordered. It'll be a bit. And then I have not ordered yet, but I think this is going to be one of the next things I try from them, is the Shelly Plug, which is, this is the US edition. And also, again, Wi-Fi. It's the smallest Wi-Fi plug I've ever seen. I've only seen Z-Wave devices this small. And that means it doesn't block the other power port on a like a wall plug. There, you could stack two of them on one wall outlet. Doesn't require a hub. That looks to me like they're reusing the the housing of the Tekin SP20 and actually uh, the CloudFree.shop smart plug. I thought so too. I thought it looked very similar. I did try to. Com- I thought the same thing. I tried to compare some pictures, and I thought maybe I saw a few small housing differences, but it's like the same exact size. The buttons in the same place. I wonder if there's some kind of regulatory shortcut they've taken there with, you know, getting that particular device through the FCC or something like that. Just an interesting observation. Not all these smart plugs let you pull like a lot of power through. This thing can go up to like 2,500 watts it can have going through it, which is great if you want to have like a space heater or a really powerful other device on there. And it does power metering, so it'll do live power collection stats. I'm hoping that that'll just feed right into Home Assistant, but we shall see when I do finally get around to ordering these. So those are what I'm looking at right now, is these Shellys. And I'm hoping that this will be kind of the components I can put together Combined with keeping like the best of my Z-Wave devices, like I love my AOTech multi-sensors, I'm hoping that I'll keep some of my Z-Wave devices, I'll eliminate some of the ones that are kind of a pain in my butt, I'll eliminate some of the HomeKit devices, and I'll replace them with some Shelly. Shelly and maybe something else. I actually would really like to know people's recommendation and what they've done here. I'd be interested to see what you think of uh, replacing the firmware on a couple of the Shelly devices. It's it's a pretty common thing to do. Some people put Tasmota on them. I've done that in the past, and it's it's worked out just fine. Other people swear by putting ESP Home on them instead, which opens up a similar level of configuration to what you can do with the the default Shelly firmware. So a couple of options for you to try, and I'd be curious to get your feedback on that. And is there any reason not to just keep the Shelly firmware? It's a great question. I mean, it's the 
do you fully own it unless you have a fully open firmware on there question um because you can perhaps <laughs> yeah, that's, you know honestly for us that might just be enough of a reason did you see Home Assistant did announce today as we're recording, they do have their first works with Home Assistant partner announced? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I, I do wish they'd announced the, par- the the program and the partner at the same time. That would have been a much better announcement, if you ask me. But I'm extremely pleased to see that they've got Leviton on there, which is a huge brand. You'll see those guys in Home Depot and lots of other big DIY stores around the earth. So uh, great job to the Home Assistant team there. Yeah, that's a good get. Makes me kind of want to uh, go check out some of their gear and their... They're Z-Wave devices. Oh, here we go again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Stuart wants a better smoke detector. Hey, Chris and the Badger. I was wondering if you had a suggestion for a smoke detector. I've been using the trusty Home Assistant for about three years and so far have managed to avoid the Z things thanks to Shelly, ESP Home and a few other useful tools. All the smoke detectors I've seen seem to depend on Z-Wave or Zigbee or whatever. Are there any other hybrid ones where it works well, but simply provides an interface via Wi-Fi to notify if away? Wouldn't such a thing be nice? And just to kind of go on top of that, Jonathan wrote in and said, I'm not actually so sure about these Z-Wave smoke detectors, guys. Time appropriate greetings. Um, I had one for a couple of years. I ended up having to disconnect it when all of a sudden it started having false alarms every other day. I just couldn't find a solution and I had to tear them down. Yikes, because I have those Z-Wave ones that you find on Amazon. I have those right now. So hopefully they don't start giving me false alarms all the time. If there's one device that you don't want to be giving you false alarms or going wrong in any way, it's a smoke detector. And in a lot of ways, it's worse when you're not home. You know, you get the alert on your phone. You're like, is there actually a fire? I don't know. So our friends over at Shelly, boy, maybe Shelly should be advertising this week. Uh, they <laughs> do have a Wi-Fi hubless smoke detector coming soon it's not yet available however their gas detector which can detect uh natch gas and uh, propane those are available and shipping so i imagine it's probably not too long until the smoke detector is available so you could always consider shelly perhaps but we'd love any ideas from the audience if you want to boost it in or go to selfhosted.show slash contact yes we would now shiram writes in every time you guys mention jellyfin on your show and that's quite often I get a huge smile on my face. I'm a Jellyfin user and my girlfriend loves it a lot as well. I recently discovered a Jellyfin feature which I'm excited about and wanted to share. You can change the complete look and feel of the Jellyfin UI, web and app by adding custom CSS, which then gets applied to all of your users. People have made very cool looking skins with lots of interactions. This can be configured in the admin dashboard general branding section of the settings there'll be a link to the documentation in the show notes maybe you guys already knew about this but i still felt like sharing keep making podcasts cheers sharam i kind of expect now the next time i come over to your house and i turn on the tv i am going to get a fully badger branded jellyfin experience at alex's house (laughs) i'm just going to brand it with those lady badges you used last week (laughs) (laughs) might as well i'll get you the source material right yeah, that's a neat idea. I could definitely see it, too, like in an office space. I've been in a dentist's office where they had some videos that were looping on a TV. It could be great for that. That's just it. Or a school or something, some kind of educational environment, or even for your kids or something where you wanted to make it absolutely clear that uh, it was a, a kid-friendly platform or something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm still a Plex guy. I I wish 
that Jellyfin was just a little bit better. It's it's getting so it is getting close. It's getting really really close, and I'm excited for the future. But as of today, I'm still a Plex guy. Ah, uh, my Plex server is off at the moment because it's too dang hot. So I just decided to just turn things off. You know, uh, we got some boosts this week, and I want to take a moment and let you know that we have some links in the show notes because. One of the things that we don't really mention, but it is intensely awesome, in my opinion, is that the booths are all self-hosted, open source, and it's all a peer-to-peer network. It's a messaging network that's peer-to-peer, and then it arrives on my server that runs here locally at the studio up in my office. It's a completely distributed, peer-to-peer, free software messaging system for you to send your feedback with a little bit of value attached into the show. And it is Awesome. And I don't talk about it much because it's, you know, related to Bitcoin. But when you think about the technology that's being used, like my setup upstairs is an Umbral box, which has a controller system that has a bunch of Docker containers underneath it that it's orchestrating that's doing all kinds of stuff to do to run all of that locally. And uh, I just love that it's become a great way for people to send messages into the show. So if you want to boost in, get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. Marcel came in. With uh, 1,997 sats, he says, Alex, I'm curious what service you use to ship things overseas. Do you have any advice on this? I am moving overseas soon and I'm debating shipping all of my stuff or maybe just buying new. What do you think? Oh, man, this was a whole process. We, When we emigrated, we moved from London to Raleigh, as you, I'm sure most people know, listening to this podcast because I talk about it all the damn time. But essentially... On the day in question, we actually moved out of London. All I had with me was a couple of suitcases and a backpack, and uh, we didn't really have an awful lot with us. But for the preceding two or three months before the big move, we actually used a service. I think it was from Seven Seas Worldwide, and they had this kind of, I think it was like three by six foot by eight foot container that we could rent a cube of, I think it's like a 40 foot container, and they give you this wooden pallet crate thing. And so what we ended up doing was taping out on the floor, and I will always remember this for the rest of my life, because we got rid of all the furniture in our house in London, and in the bedroom was this taped cube that I'd measured the height and the width, and I'd put masking tape on the floor, and I got boxes, and right next to it, because it was the whole house was being renovated and completely refloored, ready to sell it, uh, I was cramped in this little corridor next to like eight ten feet worth of boxes on this little rollout camp bed mattress with a sleeping bag thing <laughs> it was a fun memory but yeah seven seas worldwide and what happened was uh, they came to our house in london and there was a man with a van he picked up we picked up all the boxes and put them in the back of his van the crate was in the back of the van already loaded i guess with like a forklift truck or something they then sealed it up in front of us put screws in it and a seal across it and uh the next thing we saw, uh, we, they gave us that sort of semi-regular shipping updates. Like we knew when it had left Folkestone in England. We knew when it had arrived onto the East Coast. I think it came in through New Jersey in the States. Uh, and then they give you, I think, like a two-week grace period to go and pick it up at the other end before they start charging you storage fees. And so we just waited for it to come in, tell us it had cleared customs. And then they said, right, you've got two weeks off you go so we rented a van drove up to new york or new jersey and then you were the man with the van (laughs) yeah yeah i mean some of these services do offer door-to-door service but we were being a bit frugal and so we were willing to do that last little bit of the adventure on our own you must have still had to 
pick and choose what went, what you got rid of, what you tried to resell. There must have still been a lot of that. It's not a very big amount of space, let me tell you. It, you know, we, I brought with me no soft furnishings, nothing, you know, no couches, no no beds, no... I mean, there was a few... There was a couple of duvets in there, maybe, but honestly, I think we gave most of that stuff to family and friends. Uh, tables, chairs, everything was... I was ruthless. Absolutely <laughs> ruthless. Our bikes made it in there, and there was a couple of, you know, a couple of bits of tech, in, you know, like big floor-standing speakers and, and that kind of stuff. But, yeah, for the most part, we just thought we're moving to america you know the voltages are going to be different for a lot of the equipment it's a chance for us you know just turn 30 to kind of push the reset button on a lot of the hand-me-down stuff that we'd had over the years so my advice such as it is would be try and it's expensive first of all i think we paid like three thousand I might be I might be completely off base with that. It was, it was in the two to three grand range, I think, to ship all that stuff over. It took about four months. But my, my advice would be sell as much as you can at your origin and buy as much as you can at your destination, whether it's all used at the destination or what have you, you know, whilst the other stuff comes in from the boat, you know, because a lot of our kitchen stuff, like pots and pans and cutlery and all that kind of stuff, dishes, that was all on the boat. I ended up on the first night I was there going to Walmart and just filling up my trolley with like $500 worth of basic stuff like towels and plates. And (laughs) it was a real experience, particularly as that week there was a hurricane coming to Raleigh. So most of the rest of Walmart had been picked completely clean. Like I couldn't buy a tin of tuna, but I could go and buy a spatula. You know, it was okay. Welcome to Raleigh. The Walmart's been ransacked. (laughs) There's a storm coming. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, dude, it was an experience, not one I would ever wish to actually repeat because it was, you know, it's one of those things. It was super stressful and I bet. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm so glad I did it. And I wish I wish Marcel the absolute best of luck with his move. Feel free to hit me up for any other questions you've got on Discord or Twitter or anything. I'll happily share my experience in a bit more detail. And there you are now visiting again, which is uh, pretty great. It's been weird. Like uh, we've we've done a whole lap of England this time up to the the north uh, and back down to the south again. And I'm used to driving long distances in the states now. Like four hours, six hours, nine hour drives do not phase me in the slightest. But a couple of days ago, when we were driving from Middlesbrough to Norwich, it was supposed to be a four hour drive. It took us six hours, and one of those hours, it wasn't even like we were stuck in traffic. It was just sort of stop, start, that kind of oh, annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. BS sort of traffic on the A1M (laughs) past Peterborough. But then the worst part was the service station that we went into. So the best way I can describe this to you as an American is it's a bit like a rest stop, but a lot worse, a lot more cramped and not very nice. This particular one, it serves both carriageways. So there's a big roundabout above the motorway. Both directions come into this thing and they get funneled into into these services off the roundabout. First warning sign should have been that there was a queue to get into the damn place. Uh-huh. Finally, after like 15 minutes, we make it inside. We, we have a wee. We go and get a coffee, whatever. It took us 45 minutes to get out of the car park. I just, I was absolutely raging. I was fuming. I was, oh, man, I was yeah. trying my best not to be angry in front of the baby because she doesn't like that. Yeah. But it's really hard not to get angry when you think, 
I've got to be somewhere to be because I'm remote working in an hour. Yeah, it'd be hard to be at my best. I'm just sat here in traffic. Yikes. So anyway, I've had a lot of a lot of memories of why we left in the first place about how crowded England is and how expensive everything is and everything else. It I do like it to visit, but I I don't necessarily think I'll see myself moving back anytime soon. It's nice in short bursts, but I found it quite an adjustment to be back. Interesting. Yeah, I could totally understand that. Ankh Busin with 8,520 sets says he absolutely loves the self-hosted podcast and wanted to say thanks for the show. He says, Chris and Alex, you guys make a good on-air team. Do you have any tips for building a blueprint or maybe instructions for your self-hosted setup and uh, what you would do maybe in the case of one of you dying? I don't expect my SO to keep my 30-plus services running, uh, but there are certain pieces of data such as family media, scan docs, etc., that would really suck to be lost. How much time do you invest in this? Well, we just talked about this a little bit. I think, Alex, you have the right note. I don't think Ankh should go diagramming things and making essentially a Visio map of the infrastructure. I don't think anybody's going to be able to interpret that in his absence. I think your route, a simple printout, just the basics, is probably the better way to go. I think we've talked about this before, and and the conclusion we came to was... Sadly, nobody else cares about your setup quite as much as you do. Uh, I know it's a, a hard pill to swallow, but I mean, if I think about deaths in my life where fam- we've lost a family member or something, you know, there's been a, a meticulously crafted stamp collection involved, for example. I'm just not interested. I don't know enough about it. I don't really understand the why behind it and so you take it to a collector and hope you get a good price for it you know when when you sell it on it's it's probably a similar situation when all of my hardware you know when i if i part if and when i pass you know all of my all of my crap uh, and that extends to digital media as well now the one exception i would place on that is things like photographs and documents and things so i would try and make sure that there are clear instructions for how family members can access that kind of thing written down somewhere but beyond that, largely speaking, I think it's just, uh, you know, your media collection, for example, you just got to accept that's that's your hobby. That's something you enjoy. But other people probably will just pay for Netflix. I think there is a I mean, I, can't, I wish I could think of a better term, a market opportunity for this. Honestly, when it comes to photos and certain documents, I would like it to just be super straightforward for my spouse to get access to that stuff. Or, you know, you think about, like, if you've got Bitcoin stored and you pass away and maybe there's thousands of dollars worth of value in there, like, how do you pass that on to them? Or Photos, which some people would consider to be absolutely priceless. So I, I'm i surprised that this hasn't been properly addressed in some, like, you know, like Synology doesn't have an add-on for this, right? There's not, like, <laughs> there's not like a, a QNAP app to, to do this. Home Assistant hasn't solved it yet either, but it does seem like somebody should. The thing is with photos in particular, though, is in the old days, photos were quite limited. I mean, maybe, you know, a roll of film had, what, 24, 36 shots on it. Right. You had a few photo albums. And it was a real process. Whereas now, you know, I take a dozen or more photos every single day. Yeah. Like, for someone else to go through that in any kind of detail, it's not going to mean an awful lot to them. Sure, I wish there was a curated album of life moments or life events or what have you. 
that they could access, but they're not going to want to see every single time my daughter ate a strawberry or, you know. You know, this is a feature in PhotoPRISM, right? Like import a deceased member's photo library, not to be morbid about this, but just think about it. Like what if PhotoPRISM let you do that and then you could train it what type of photos that you're the most interested in, give it like a, you know, go through like 50 of them, flag the ones you think is best, have it build a model of some kind, and then it just auto-generates like a best of from their photo album for you. And that's honestly, even that is probably more effort than most people would be willing to go through. But having something like that would be nice. Something that just tries to pull out some of the best, gets rid of the thousands of like, you know, pictures of your feet that you took while you're opening the app. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, if you want to come to London and take lots more pictures of your feet with me in front of the <laughs> London Eye, make sure you're going to the meetup page at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for all the latest details on that meetup. Are you going to post pictures on Twitter so we can see them? I will do my best, yeah. Uh, but I, I plan on the day in question to actually be busy meeting people. That's that's kind of the idea, right? Yeah, that's true. Okay, other people take pictures for Alex, would you? Because otherwise I'm not going to get any pictures. We need like a nominated driver, like a nominated photographer. Uh, all right. Well, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you, everybody who else boosted in TrevDev, user 5619, and of course, Cass Pland boosted in with 3,690 sats. Go grab Boost CLI or a new podcast app, and we'll have links to Shelly Flood and the other stuff that we talked about, including the links to the information about the Lightning Network, if you want to figure out how to set up your own channels, if you're going to be boosted in frequently, and all that stuff. And then, last but not least... Let's say big thank you to our SREs, our site reliability engineers, our members who support the show. They get an ad-free show and they get the post-show, something only our members get access to. You can join us at selfhosted.show slash SRE. Thank you. You give us the runway to say yay or nay to individual sponsors that approach us that don't fit. And that really, I mean, that makes you our number one customer. And I think that's, that's a big deal. Alex. Where can people get a hold of you for like meetup stuff between now and when the meetup actually starts? What's the best avenue to get you quick? I think Discord's probably the best place at AlexKTZ. There you go. Of course, the podcast is on Twitter at Self Hosted Show and the whole dang network at Jupiter Signal. And of course, if you're on the West Coast, we got a whole bunch of meetups coming in September. Yes, we do. And if you're interested in coming to the JPL tour, those of you that listen to LUP probably already have all the details. There are a limited number of spots available. I think it's in the region of 15 or something like that. Uh, where can folks go to enter the raffle that you're running to to get a spot on that tour, Chris? Linuxunplugged.com slash JPL. It's just a quick NextCloud form, and then we're going to pull some names. We, ha- we only have about 15 slots, so we're going to pull some names, and we're going to pull a few backup names. The only thing that we ask is that please make it, like if you sign up, Please make sure you can be there. You know? Please make it because there's only so many slots. So that's at linuxunplug.com slash JPL. And that will be on September the 29th, I believe, at uh, about noon on the West Coast. Yes, exactly. So thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 76. You know what? It is redonks hot. So I've, for the last three days, been shutting down the server, you know, as it gets hot. And of course... I just got Brent streaming from my Plex so we could finish up Strange New Worlds and Discovery, I think. You got to get Star Trek on your Plex, obviously. But then if, then, I, then I end up, so I get him hooked, and then I have to shut it down on him. <laughs> yeah, for those that are listening, uh, Brent is house-sitting for me at the moment. He's back in Raleigh. 
doing a few odd jobs and taking care of Archie and probably playing a lot of drums amongst other things. But I think it's, uh, you know, uh, this, this heat wave is in England, it was like 104 degrees, which is like 40 Celsius the weekend we got here. It's, it's no joke, is it? Yeah. And why risk it? You know, I'll just shut it down. The only thing that stinks is there's a, there's like a bunch of like things I got to, like, I got to change the DNS servers in the studio, and the, but I just do that via DHCP, right? Like I got to, I got to remember, oh yeah, that service is offline. I can't get access to that page. Oh yeah, we don't have that. That's not automatically downloading in the background, you know, th- that kind of stuff. But you realize just how intrinsic this self-hosting malarkey has become in your life and how much stuff you've, you've done with it. It's been super, as they say, super solid. Rock solid, rock solid. Oh, that's what it was. Rock solid. <laughs>